I'm Elena Salinas, and this is the Women in Tech Show, a show where women in tech talk about technology and career development. On today's episode, I talked with Katie Stone Paris, a senior program manager at the independent developer Xbox team. Katie comes from a background in psychology, and we talked about the interesting perspective that this brings to building a team and how to approach product development in the gaming industry. We also talked about independent game developers and how these are changing the gaming industry by creating a very unique set of games that have contributed to engaging a more diverse community. One interesting example of this is a video game called I Hope, where you're battling cancer. We also explore topics around career development and initiatives to bring more diversity to the gaming industry. If you like the show, please rate on iTunes or send me a tweet at Tech Women Show. Katie Stone Paris is joining us today here at Microsoft, and she's a senior program manager at the ID at Xbox program, which is it. which is the independent developer Xbox team. Katie, welcome to the Women in Tech show. I'm glad you were able to come today. Thank you so much. It's an honor to get to talk with your audience. So thanks so much for having me on. So you've been in the gaming industry since 2001, and you came right out of college from a background just in psychology. How did you get into the gaming industry? Yeah, so that's a pretty interesting one, actually. To be totally honest, I never, I grew up playing games, absolutely loved playing games as a kid. Um, never felt like that was at all a career opportunity, like just had no um, exposure to video game development as a career. And I ended up um, running into a Microsoft recruiter at a hockey game of all places at, oh, wow. at the university I was attending. Yeah. And, um, and he ended up talking to me about um, coming and applying at Microsoft in a testing role and Microsoft was just launching this new division for Xbox um, and you know talking about the value that I could bring in that space and I was like I don't even know what a tester does can I read a book so I just read a book and like studied a ton um, and thankfully when it came time to to actually you know go through my interview process I was able to really talk about a lot of the principles that I had kind of learned in psychology and it really resonated with the people who were on my interview loop. And I think that, you know, I was thankfully able to kind of demonstrate that I was able to learn kind of quickly on my feet and, and love the space. But um, but thankfully for me, um, I was really able to kind of bring a new voice. And I actually had a really powerful moment for me because I started in, in a lot of ways, I was a fish out of water, right? I was actually one of very few women on a pretty large team of, of young men um, who were really hardcore. Like they would go and play at lunch every day and play Street Fighter. And I tried my darndest, but I was just not getting those combos in in Street Fighter. I think there was something where you had to play during certain years of your life to get your fingers to be able to do that. But exactly, there, I was just not working for me no matter how hard I tried to get some of those Street Fighter combos. Um, and so, you know, I easily could have felt like, hey, this isn't a career that I can be in. But I honestly had a really amazing um, boss at the time. And I kind of went to him and I was like, hey, I apologize. You know, I don't have a background in computer science. Like, there's so much that you have to teach me. And he actually turned to me and he was like, Katie, don't ever apologize. You demonstrated that you are smart, that you can learn things. He was like, all of these tools, all of this tech, like, we have no concern that you're going to be able to learn this, no problem. You know, what you have is a different opinion on how we should do things and a different voice that you can bring to our products and our consumers. And that needs to be heard. And we don't want you to just kind of emulate and just become what everybody else is doing. And that was incredibly powerful. And so I, you know, I want to take this opportunity for all of the, you know, people listening to the show, like recognize that you also have that voice because we each have such unique capabilities and talents that we can bring to the table and um, you know when when we only look at candidates who you know fill a certain you know experience set that that ends up limiting the type of candidates that we get and when we can instead hire on capability and raw skills and potential 
um, then it actually really lets us kind of expand who we're bringing to the table and who and who's evolved in our products, which is critical if we want to make products that everyone can experience and everyone can enjoy. Yeah. It's critical that we're we're actually having a diverse and inclusive um, staff to do that. So. Yes. So do you think if it hadn't been for that conversation with your boss that eventually you would have felt intimidated, you know, by all this people that were really into that game that you mentioned? And I think, um, to be honest, somewhat of my personality is a, I'll, I'll prove, I'll prove it. Okay. <laughs> that kind of makes sense. Okay. If, so if you look at me from early on, I'm kind of one of those, like, I'm not going to be the one who fails at this type of thing. Okay. Um, <laughs> so it would have very, very funny adventures from um, high school outdoor club where I ended up on a camping trip that was not at all what I thought it to be. And I was the lone girl and I was hell bent that I was not going to be the one left behind not succeeding because then it would have been like the girl can't do it and I was like that is not gonna be me I will succeed um so I think that's a little bit my personality as well but um but I do think that that conversation was pivotal and I think that you know it's really a shame that more of us in our careers when we're starting our careers no matter what our background no matter how we got into the position no matter where we are in our career set you know managers have such an opportunity to leverage the talent within their teams. And I think by creating teams where people feel empowered to speak up and be a voice of dissent is critical. And I think I'm really lucky because Microsoft was willing to listen. And I'll say that now as I hire team members, one of the first things I say as a new member joins my team is, look, every single person in this team has an equal voice. It does not matter what your role is. You have an equal voice to be heard. If you disagree with how we're approaching something, if you see an opportunity, you have the opportunity, but also the responsibility yeah. to speak up if you think that we're not doing something. And because of that, I think I have an amazing team of individuals who you know, are willing to say, hey, I actually totally think we should do this different. And you know, I'll stop and take pause and be like, actually, you're making really great points. Let's go with that, right? And I don't have to always have the right answer yeah. we're just brainstorming and working together as a team and, and we are more efficient and more effective because of that yeah let's talk a little bit about that you're currently a manager right and with your background in psychology how has this helped building and nurturing a su successful team in the gaming industry yeah so i feel for me one of the things that really left me with a different perspective having having done psychology is you know even even in college when you're when you're doing an undergraduate degree in psychology you have to do all this all this research right and you have to bring in participants and you have to think about you know what is this participant's experience and what is their journey here and so that really left me with this concept of what is the journey right what is the journey for our consumer what is the and the customer like how many like and i've i've asked questions of teams and they look at me and they're like we've never even thought about that like when i asked like how many times do you expect someone to die within the first level of your game? And they're like, we've never even thought about that pivot of it, right? And it's really interesting because as a, as a video game industry, we actually are still so stuck in our coin out mentality. If you think about where our industry came from, it came from people going to arcades and putting quarters in machine and the games had to kill you because they needed you to put another quarter into the machine. Yeah. And funny enough, it's years later, people pay all their quarters up front and yet we still just kill you off. And if you look at the success rate of people who actually start a game and actually end up completing it, the completion rates of games are extremely low extremely low and given the fact that we're a sequel based industry that's really counterintuitive because we want you to buy our next game we're gonna make yeah. our next game follow the same story and have the same beloved characters but we didn't take you on the entire journey with us in the first game right and so if you think about that it's really not the best way to approach a business right to try and kill off a bunch of your consumers but then try and pull them back in the next time and so i'm not saying that games shouldn't be difficult or games shouldn't have challenge to them but we need to really consciously think about what our developer's journey is um, or what our consumer's journey is. And I think the same thing, you know, that same journey principle has really helped me in terms of building a team because in thinking about both our end consumer's journey as well as, you know, in my role, I really help manage a developer program where we're helping developers to be successful. So every single person on my team knows that we have very, very clear 
goals, and that is to help our developers be successful. And so it really is about what is the developer's journey, and how do we get them the information in the right time frame, and how do we streamline the process for them, and how do we help them feel successful, and how do we help you know them feel like this is a win. And um, the entire team rallies around that, and I think when you have such a strong North Star um, and a team that feels like they can speak up, um, then I think it really creates a really powerful dynamic within the team for success. Yeah, and a lot of it is having the team be on the other side, like as if they were the developer, like try to understand how they would react to something or. Exactly, and even just going through on a whiteboard, like what is our developer's journey? Like for ID at Xbox, right, we run a developer program and people can apply to the program and they go through the process and they get different information and there's different things that they need to do. And so we actually, every few months, we'll put that entire process up on a whiteboard and walk through the entire process. How long does it take in this phase? And and what information are they getting here and is this too much information that we're getting a lot of questions here or you know my team knows that I have um, I have a challenge out to all of them if you get the same question within a short period of time it is your responsibility to look at how we take and preactively answer that question how do we document that so that the next person doesn't have to struggle and will find that information naturally instead of having to result to kind of reaching out and getting the question answered so that they naturally feel that they had success versus having to kind of get off the rail, if that kind of makes sense. And so and so I think that really strong, you know, my background in psychology really f- had me focus on that, really that developer and, and consumer empathy, right? And I really think it's that empathy that helps us and has helped us to create a program where we really are trying to be the best program possible for our developers. Mm-hmm. And if you could teach one concept from psychology to all the managers in the tech industry, what would it be? Is there I, something? I think if I could teach one concept to anybody anywhere, it would actually be empathy. So I think that, um, you know, as a parent myself, it's funny, but I very consciously have chosen how to teach empathy with my kids. And we've coached empathy from the earliest ages. Um, and it's really interesting because my, my oldest one is seven now. And, you know, we've had incidents happen at schools and things like that where my daughter will step in and just be the amazing little person she is. And the other moms will look at me and be like, she is so empathetic and she's just, you know, and I'm like, thank you, that was a very conscious effort. <laughs> yeah, how, how do you, how did you manage to do that? Honestly, a lot of emotion coaching, a lot, you know, when they were very little, we actually did sign language with them, right? And so everything, anytime we had a situation, we would talk about it, we would sign it. How are you feeling from a very early age? How are you feeling, right? And honoring their emotion. And instead of saying, oh, just, you know, shrug it off or whatever, I see you're feeling frustrated. I can understand why you would be feeling frustrated. Let's talk about how we could help you feel less frustrated, right? Um, So by owning, I think, those emotions and honoring them instead of kind of being dismissing, dismissive of them, I think really goes a long way um, with kids. And I think that it's really taught my kids to better understand the people that they're around. Um, But I think just in general, like we need, if you look at the world today, honestly, like the world has some pretty major problems going on within it. And I think one of them is just the lack of unity towards humanity that we that we honestly experience and feel. And I think that we as a, as a world, as humans, need to have a stronger empathy for those who live all around us but aren't us, right? And I think that by helping teach empathy from a very early age, about you know respecting and honoring the differences that we are um, across our human race really is is what we need to be focused on right now because it's it's this next generation that we need to focus on trying to fix some of these issues at because we just we're not in a great place yeah. in the world today and I think that it's it honestly really stems from a lack of empathy yeah and that can also naturally lead to having more diverse teams and diverse communities. Definitely, yeah. right? Like I think that um, I think that when you have that stronger empathy for people, it's not scary when people aren't like you because yeah. you embrace it instead of instead of kind of run from it. And so it's just yeah. something that naturally gravitates um, and and works and and people feel good about it versus kind of being scared of it. Yes, definitely. So let's talk a little bit about um, your contributions. You worked in the 
Xbox Live Arcade, like I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And this is a platform for distribution of games, right? Arcade games. Yeah, so, so ID at Xbox, where I work now, is an independent developer program where people can independently publish their content on Xbox One or Windows 10. Previously, I helped create Xbox Live Arcade. Um, I've been at Xbox 15 years now, so I you know, have helped ship a, a slew of games, as well as I also helped incubate um, the Kinect technology, as well as the HoloLens technology, actually. And at the beginning, you worked on in software development and testing, particularly of video games like Fusion Frenzy, Kung Fu Chaos. What does the test plan look like for a video game? For a video game, yeah. So um, it is varied, just like any other piece of software. I mean, you're going to have really odd edge cases. <laughs> okay. Do you remember some of those? Oh, or? my gosh. There was one edge case where um, if you... If you played the, like the same song on original Xbox, you could like import your own CDs onto the Xbox and then listen to your music while you yeah. were playing. And there was like certain if you had a CD with a track like a certain like number of tracks, like it had like I think I put in a Now CD right because I yeah. was listening to Now music and everybody else like had imported like standard CDs with like twelve songs or whatever. And my CD had like twenty one songs and it completely like created this absolutely bizarre bug in the game um, because it was a CD that had 21 songs, right? So there were weird things like that, right? Whereas I just happened to listen to Now Music. <laughs> yeah, me too. So I, was, so I was importing CDs with a lot more tracks. Um, but yeah, so there's weird things like that. I remember there were all kinds of crazy ones too where like in Fusion Frenzy where, you know, we'd have to go into all, you're always testing like collision volumes in video games, right? So you have kind of this giant skybox and you have kind of your world you know, within it and you have all the collision volumes and you have to test to make sure that your character kind of can't clip into one of the collision areas, right? Or can't actually like get out of that and into kind of like this other space, right? Where you're Stay just in the of, boundaries or something? Exactly. So that the character doesn't end up like looking like they're just floating on screen and now they can't move anywhere, things like that. And so we'd have to all like work together and all pile up in a corner and try and jump on each other's heads and try and, you know, get out of the collision oh. areas. <laughs> and sometimes we'd be successful. And so we'd have to put in bugs like, oh, you know, if so and so, if you j have three people stand on each other's head and jump, then, yeah. you know, like, and it's all about timing it at the same time. And that's like to the extreme of, you know, like testing the edge cases. But it's a lot of, you know, like, um, you know, playing against the AI and how difficult is the AI. And yeah. that was one of the things like I joined and I was like, oh my gosh, the AI is so hard. They're completely, you know, kicking me all left and right. And I'm like losing hardcore to like the simplest AI. And yeah. so we actually really in Fusion Frenzy, they really scaled back the AI and made it a lot, a lot less powerful. And it still shipped and people still complained the AI was too hard. Wow. So imagine what it would have what the consumer perspective would have been had we not made those changes. And so that was one of those areas where, you know, I was new to the company. Yeah. I felt like I could voice my opinion. We modified it. I probably should have voiced it again and been like, hey, it's still way too hard. But I, you know, I was still learning. It was my first product too. So we should have done more consumer testing in that case to have a better understanding of, you know, was the difficulty levels in the game really setting our consumers up for success, right? Um, and so, because that's one of those areas too that even though you have a test team, um, you know, as developers, when you create something or you build something and you yeah. use it again and again and again, things that are really difficult for other people um, can seem so just simple for you, right? So one of the things that a lot of times we'll do in like usability or testing is just bring people in and say, hey, where do you think you're supposed to be going now? Or this kind of that. And developers can create this whole beautiful plan of how someone's going to engage in their game. Yeah. But the users will go completely off the rail or not even know that they were even supposed to go in that direction or things yeah. like that. And so a lot of video games are, are using subtle clues to really help users understand like, hey, this is the direction you're supposed to be going in and things like that. And and as developers too, we also have a tendency to sometimes use clues that kind of um, rely on previous game experience, right? I remember when I was playing a game years and years ago and I remember being totally stuck and I was like, what is happening? Like, I'm totally stuck in this level. And this is over 20 years ago. And, um, you know, my boyfriend came home and I was like, oh, I'm so stuck. Like, what do I do? And he's like, oh, there's a crack on that wall. Oh, and I was wow. like, so what does that mean? And he's like, well, that means you can break it. And I'm like, where was that? And yeah. he's like, in the first Zelda. And I'm like, well, I didn't play that one. So where yeah. was my tutorial, right? Yeah. And so like, 
again, like as as video game developers, we have so much of our history that we kind of play off of. Yeah. And although that's like a very common thing, it's important to still put a tooltip for a brand new user yeah. where you are their first crack in the wall, um, you know, to make sure that that user is going to be just as successful as someone who has played through all the content. Yeah. A lot of the games, what I see they do now is there's a... You're not really playing yet. You just see text like "try sliding on this wall" or that. Yeah. That was the the Meat Man, or I forget the name Super of that. Super Meat game. Boy. Yeah, Meat Boy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So a lot of games now will have like a tutorial level yeah, um, where you can fun. go in and do that kind of stuff, and I think that's a great thing for success. I think it's really yeah. interesting too because if you also look at how rampant. Um, people using wikis and game facts are, yeah. right? Um, and how often people have to go to things like that to be successful in our games. I think that's a sign that maybe we need to be a little bit better in our games of helping people be successful, right? When we've created such a rampant business for other people, um, that's just really helping people be informed about what they're supposed to do in our video game. And it, that's I, not good. It, it, shows, it shows that we have plenty of opportunity to be better as creators ourselves so that everyone has an ideal experience and doesn't have to go off platform to kind of be successful in our experience. Do you measure that or is there a system to keep track of those things like, oh, there are a thousand new posts in this forum about this level. So there are or, games that will very actively measure yeah. that, right? Um, we don't do that in ID, like we're not measuring that for the program type of thing. But when I've worked on individual titles where I was an EP in the title and things like that, yeah. we would definitely keep tr keep track of that kind of thing um, and look at what kind of tools we had to proactively do it. And even if you did see like, hey, we're kind of hearing a lot of people are stuck on this, you know, community managers are so great today and that's where you can have your community manager team reach out and say, hey, everybody, we just wanted to do a show talking all about how to be successful against this type of boss and some of the things that are, you know, make you the most successful and here's some strategies that you can use, right? And by being able to have someone reach out and do that, then at least when that person does go to search for information, um, they'll have success in finding it. It would be better if they didn't have to go to another platform to search, but at least you've then put the information out there so that when they do go looking for it, they'll be successful. Yeah, and it's much easier now because uh, when I used to play uh, Diddy Kong Racing, it took me, like there was several years that passed and then I found out that um, bumping into some wall, that, that trigger a rocket and like, yeah. but that, that we didn't have internet that accessible. Exactly, right? So it was I like, mean, if you think original Mario, like how did you learn all the secrets of original Mario? Where like the- Word of mouth. Or you know, where all the little sprouts were and everything. And you totally just had to go to your friend's house and you'd yeah. sit there and be watching someone play and you'd be like, oh, yeah. I didn't know there was a block there. And it would totally like blow your mind, right? And you're like, oh my God, look at that. Right, and so, um, and now the internet just kind of puts it all out there. So it's kind of hilarious, but. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that really just shows what an opportunity yeah. we have as, as developers to help people kind of intrinsically kind of be more successful in our content. Um, you know, and I think that when we can really think about, and I really do think too, as I was saying, you know, we are such a sequel based industry too, and people do, you know, really get an affinity for certain developers and kind of follow what they're making and things like that. And I think when you see people make good products where you can be successful and you love the content, you do kind of get that following. And so I think there really is a strong business case for developers to think about, you know, putting these types of features in their games and being more supportive for users in their games. And it's, as game developers too, I think we also still have the assumption that um, people are sitting down night after night and playing our games, right? And yeah. you know, like as a kid, I remember like you had a limited allowance. There were only so many games at Toys R Us that week, right? And so like, and you weren't going to Toys R Us every week because they were really expensive. And so you would sit and I remember playing hours and just dying and dying and dying and dying and dying and yeah. just keeping playing games and that was totally fine. But now I have a family, I have kids, I have my job. Like I can't even sit down and game, even if it's a game I'm super into, the likelihood that I can sit down and play it two nights in a row is extremely low in my life, as, yeah. as passionate as I am about video games. And so, you know, I think we have to remember like, people might not have just played it yesterday. You have to give them tips and tricks about, you know, what were they doing? What direction? I've restarted RPGs and I'm like, 
I don't remember what direction I'm supposed to walk in right now, right? Like literally I'm in the middle of a forest and there's a town on both sides of me and I have no idea and it's going to take me five to ten minutes to get to the town only to find out that I've gone completely the wrong direction. And then honestly I'm like, I'm just going to turn it off. Like because it's, you know, that ten minutes when they just could have said like, you were walking this way, you know, or leave me a section where I can write myself a note, like, you know, like, so I think we have to think about that. Yes, definitely. So I'm a little curious of, you you started in testing, but you came from psychology, like I mentioned, and then you were also producing some games. Yeah, so I I started in test and then became a producer, yeah. How did you immerse in um, more technical areas, were you programming in your free time or were you just talking to your colleagues or how did that happen? Because it it was right out of college, right? Or yeah. did you take a time off? At no, the yeah, no. So I started right out of college as a tester and then really quickly identified that I was really interested in becoming a producer. And I was so lucky. I had an amazing mentor at the time whose name oh. is Shona Davenport. And Um, She was the PM that I was working with on my next project, and she really gave me all kinds of um, resources and great feedback and let me take on small projects within the the product we were working on um, to kind of drive that. And I just learned so much from her. In fact, for years to come when I was working on projects, not working with her, I would actually stop. And if I'd be really challenged, I'd stop and think, what would Shona do? And then I would do it. And then it always turned out amazing. And people would be like, how'd you know to do that? And I was like, I just channeled um, Shona. Yeah. Um, so it was fantastic. So I was so lucky early on to have such a great mentor. But um, okay. but I think the, the other thing is, you know, I did go and I took some night classes and did some online classes in, in some basics and coding and things like yeah. that. But as much as, cause I needed to understand it. And I needed to understand when I was talking with developers what was capable, like why were certain things challenging more so than others and things like that. But as much as um, as much as I respect that field, my personality day to day, like coding wasn't gonna be my thing. Like that wasn't my thing. I love kind of creating and bringing the entire group together and kind of having that vision and kind of driving everyone along. And so as much as I needed to get competent in the vocabulary we were having a conversation in, um, I didn't become in, you know, what I would call super technical, right? I am at a place where I can talk very competently about APIs that are in our program and how developers need to tackle certain things and, you know, quality of service around matchmaking and things like that. But if you asked me to sit and look through someone's code, that would be outside of my wheelhouse. And I don't think that, because though I don't write code doesn't mean that I can't understand the products we're working on. And it doesn't mean that I don't, again, understand the goals that we need to align to, right? So I've worked on extremely technical areas. You know, if you if you look at, um, you know, when we were making Connect and I was working with the team that was developing skeletal tracking, you know, that was insanely technical. I was literally working with people who had like degrees in like rocket science and things like that. And, you know, we're at all kinds of top universities and things like that. And there would be some times where I'd have to even record a conversation and listen to it two or three times to fully understand, you know, everything about the technology that we were working at. For instance, when we were creating HoloLens, right? I had never done anything with optics before. And I remember one specific conversation where I was like, okay, it's gonna take me a couple times of going through this to figure that out. But I always was willing to jump in and figure it out, if that kind of makes sense. And I think the key to that has really been that I've always been able to find people who would stand beside me and help serve as um, technical mentors for me. And these are a lot of cases, not even necessarily someone, you know, when we use the term mentor, I think there's a lot of times an assumption that that person's more senior. But in a lot of cases, these have been peers of mine or even people who were junior to me, but who were really great at helping me understand the technology challenges and what was going to be capable, what wasn't going to be capable. And so, you know, I would very clearly, you know, early on, for instance, in Xbox Live Arcade, like I would very clearly sit down with the developer on the team and say, hey, I need you to help educate me in this space. Like we're trying to do X, Y, and Z. I'm hearing it's going to be hard. Explain to me why that's going to be hard or explain to me why we have to use this technology or explain to me why this has to happen. And I've been so 
lucky to have so many amazing developers that were willing to take the time and do that, that then that knowledge I was able to take and totally run with. And then I could look at how to do the product designs or how to do this type of thing or schedule this or that. And um, and so I think you really have to have a good understanding of what, you know, you have to be competent in the space. So it, I think there's some great stuff about like, um, you know, and accept that you don't strengths. know everything. Yeah, and I think there's some great stuff out there like discover your strengths and things like that. And it taught, you know, and that talks about, you know, you have areas of strength and you have areas that are are weaknesses and it's important to shore up your weaknesses, right? It's important to make sure that they're not a deficit that you can't be successful with your strengths. But then focus on your strengths, right? And so again, for me, I've been so lucky that I've had so many amazing developers. I mean, I have a handful that I might not have even worked with that person in the last 10 years, but I know I can still pick up the phone and call that person and be like, hey, I'm seeing this from a tech standpoint. Would you mind helping, you know, help me walk through this and understand this better? And they always take the time to do it. And so I'm just really lucky that I've had such great relationships with with people who could help facilitate that for me. Yes, definitely. And it also helps you later on to, like you said, project if something is going to be out of scope without wasting time, you know, going forward with some feature of some project. Yeah. And I think part of that too, like I think all of us in our lives, no matter if it's in the tech field or whatever, there's going to be areas that are more of a weakness to us. And when we look around, there's going to be peers that we can reach out to and collaborate with in those areas. And I think it's so funny because as humans, we've we've somehow got it into our head that we have to stand there and be strong and act as if we know everything and yeah. not put our weaknesses out there. Um, and I actually think it's so powerful to just own your strengths and own your areas of weakness and just come out to people who you know are stronger in those other areas and be like, hey, this is actually an area that isn't a strength of mine. Would you mind if we collaborated together? And, and um, I've found that people to be so receptive in that space. And the other thing too is that I've always really approached all the projects I've run as a really collaborative win-win. Again, everyone has a voice at the table. And I think that because of that, the teams that I've worked on, I've seen extreme loyalty from other team members towards me, right? And so I think that that's been really important too, that just in in having that type of management approach and having that type of team dynamic approach, even when they were peers and I wasn't directly managing them, it's created such a collaborative community that you see that type of, of work together. It's almost like really, in many cases, like a family. Um, yes, you know, definitely. a family atmosphere that ends up forming. And so I think people really need to, to be open to that. Um, and similar to that, one of the other areas where I think we as humans, again, are, are so challenged is acknowledging where we've made mistakes. Um, I learned very early on in my career that when you messed up, if you actually just owned it and went to your boss and were like, dude, I totally messed up. Here's what happened. I'll make sure this never happens again. Here's the steps I'm going to take to make sure it never happens again. What could they kind of do? At that point, they're like, okay, you messed up. I'm glad you know. Great. Right. Okay. Learn from it. Learn from it. Great. Like you kind of got Move it on. acknowledged. Right. It was I would watch other people and they would like not acknowledge it. And then you'd see this like whole dynamic play out of like their manager or other people pointing fingers in this whole dynamic. And I was like, dude, you're making it so much worse for yourself. If you just owned your mistake and said, hey, I totally made a mistake here. Um it totally actually de-escalates it yeah. <laughs> where instead of instead of being so defensive about it and having it escalate. And so that's another area that I think that people really need to think about consciously. And, and the same is also true for feedback. I was just talking with someone today about this is that, you know, a lot of times people get really defensive when you get critical feedback from someone. But if you think about it, it's actually easier for people not to give you critical feedback. If someone's your boss, they kind of have to because hopefully they want to grow you and it's kind of their job to give you critical feedback. But especially if it's a coworker, things like that, it's actually easier for them to just sit silent. Okay, you could argue certain personalities enjoy, you know, giving feedback or whatever. But really, it's easier for them to sit silent. So you really have to think about the fact that critical feedback is actually a gift. And you can take that feedback and really own it and listen to it and really accelerate your career. 
or you can stay in a situation where people are thinking that around you, but because you've been so defensive about it, they're gonna stop telling you. And that really puts people into kind of a stagnant situation in their career. And so I really encourage people to find mentors and not, and when I say the word mentor, I'm very clear that I'm not saying find a cheerleader. A (laughs) cheerleader is someone who, you have a really bad day and you can call and they're like, you know what, you're so awesome. They don't know who, how awesome you are and you can get back up and you can do it again. That's what a cheerleader is. And you need those in your life too. But you also need the people who can look at you and say, you know, do you see an opportunity here? Or, you know, how could this have gone a little better? Or what could you have done differently? And it's hard to, it's hard to always welcome those people to your table because it can sometimes not feel great, right? It doesn't leave us at the, we don't leave the office the same way we do as if we met with our cheerleader for the day. But the mentors are gonna be the ones who can give you that critical feedback and who you're gonna really grow with. And you will see yourself in a really much better situation by having a few of those mentors at the table. And again, by not going in with that really defensive attitude and by welcoming that feedback openly and letting people know you're open to feedback, um, it really gives you a strategic advantage against everybody else because they think really our society, our society, I mean, they're not even like using red pens on kids you know term papers or whatever anymore because red is too insulting or whatever if you can't take some red pen marks on your paper life's going to be pretty rough right um and so and so I think it's pretty it's it's great to actually embrace that kind of stuff and and don't let it get you down like don't let it diminish who you are or the value that you bring and the value you think you bring but every single one of us has an opportunity to do more and do better yes definitely I totally agree with that and so I want to switch gears a bit and talk about the Microsoft independent developer program the idea at Xbox And can you explain just briefly what it is? Yeah, so traditionally you've seen, you know, um, well, there's always been independent developers, but when you look at, you know, kind of original console development, a lot of times the games were being published by a small set of publishers, right? And there's fantastic publishers out there, and you have so many different great publishers. You have like EA and Ubisoft and Activision. There's a whole slew of these publishers. Um, And so it was really hard for smaller independent developers to bring content to the console without having a publishing deal. So they would have to work with someone else to bring their content to market. Well, as soon as you're working with someone else and someone else's finances are tied into it, then it can be more challenging because then, you know, they also have their own opinion on the type of content you're making and things like that. So so the independent um, developer program is really about allowing every developer to independently act as their own publisher and to publish their content onto the platform independently. Um, and I actually think that um, we've just seen tremendous, tremendous success within the program. We're a couple years old now. We've had a couple hundred games ship. Um, you know, we have developers who are doing absolutely fantastic financially. Um, really seeing amazing results shipping into the program, showing that this type of content is really well received on console. Um, and so the program is really about helping independent developers be successful, and that comes from everything from you know we give them free dev kits for Xbox. We have a bunch of developer education stuff that we do. They have all the same access and information as any other major publisher on the platform. Um, But, you know, it really opens up the door to who can actually create content with us. And I think because you're opening up the door of who can create content, it also opens up the door of what kind of content's really being created. What types of games do you see most commonly being created by independent developers? Is there a... There's not. There's not a single, and that's what I think is so cool about this space. You know, as you look at our industry as a whole, you see kind of more specific genres and things like that, and there's certain genres that really tend to lead, and you know, you'll see see trends in certain areas. Um, And within the ID program, we see such a huge variety of content and really success across so much content Um, and so many new things that like I had just never seen before even you know like I was talking about how much I love you know how important empathy is to me we have a game in the program called Beyond Eyes where you're playing as a young girl who's gone blind due to an accident and you were kind of like afraid to leave your home and 
you befriend a cat and all of a sudden the cat goes missing. And so that is your impetus to kind of go out into the world and look for your your friend. And the entire world is white. And as you move through the world, these beautiful watercolors kind of paint things as you hear it. Um, wow, and so that's it's awesome. so different than like anything I had it ever is, played, yeah. right? And um, I love I I love the concept of the game. And in fact, my own daughter played through the game and ended up looking at me and saying, "Mama, are there really people who are blind?" Now here I'm telling you how much like empathy coaching was important to me. Yeah. She, we had totally talked about people who were deaf, but we had somehow never had a conversation that some people didn't have vision, yeah. and. It created this extreme empathy within her. And at lunch that day, and for weeks, and still to this day actually, she will decide to pretend that she cannot see. And she ate lunch that day and we went to the park and she wanted us to lead her around. Fast forward to, you know, it's now been over a year since that time frame. We've actually befriended a woman who is blind and we volunteer with, with, you know, um, some local blind organizations and we adopted a retired guide dog. Um, And so she'll now have our dog actually lead her around as if she is in fact blind. And so, when you think about again the power that a video game can have and it created this deep empathy in my daughter um for this whole population that she wasn't even aware of existed previously and that's just one specific example there's so many other you know great things the world has so many different people of all different faiths and backgrounds and you know belief systems and so much our society has normalized you know, a very limited set of, of what our world is today. And even video games have really limited what's normal within video games, right? And I think if we really want to work at, you know, creating that empathy for others, we have to start normalizing others within our games and within our mediums. And so I think as product creators, it is our responsibility to make sure that our products show diversity and inclusion. Um, and I think that, you know, we really see that come from so many, so many of our independent developers are leading in that space and telling stories that you just wouldn't see be told today if, you know, the games were only coming through kind of the some big of these players. other channels. Yeah. 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 One other one that I saw that I really like was called I Hope, which yes. is about cancer. I'm so, I'm so in love with I Hope. Yeah. 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 So, and I Hope you're actually playing a young girl named Hope and your town has been ravaged by cancer. And so you are going through and battling cancer. And the developers of this game are just absolutely amazing people. And um, they've actually been working with child life specialists around the country to specifically look at how do they take one of the most, you know, challenging situations for kids, right? Of being stuck in a hospital bed and really being powerless in many ways. And how do they help create a situation where the child feels like they have some control and power again and put them into a place of empowerment? And it, I mean, honestly, can there be a better purpose <laughs> to do anything, right? I mean, no, no one can look at that and argue about about the um, the motives or the beauty in what they're trying to do there. And so, I think that's just such an amazing game. We have another game called We Are Chicago, mm-hmm. um, where you actually play through and you are living in the south side of Chicago, and you have to make choices on, you know, are you going to take your little sister to the park and. If you do, there's a chance you guys could get shot at by a gang. And that's a real reality for people who live in the south side of Chicago. The team actually went and worked with people who collected stories. And everything in the game is based off of stories that came from people who lived in that area and I think helping inform us because that's not my reality. I don't I don't I don't have to make that choice when I take my child to the park. Um, and it's definitely the reality for others. And so again, it's really important that we really understand that. And again, it's such an amazing demonstration of how by having that content in video games, it can teach empathy and teach that awareness in such a powerful way. And so I really think with kids spending so much time in video games, it really is such an amazing opportunity for us to use it for social good. Mm -hmm. And grabbing stories from people who who we wouldn't have heard from if it was just the big players. 
yeah making video games yeah it really it really brings in so much diversity and um and i'm i'm really excited i'm speaking tomorrow or on friday at um gamer x which is a video game convention for lgbtq people um developers and and um those who affiliate in that space and are allies in that space and again like you know imagine you know being LGBTQ and playing through games, you don't see that represented, right? And by seeing, by playing through some of our content within the ID space and, you know, that these developers are creating, you end up having people feel like they can find stories that feel representative to who they are. And that's so important. You know, I don't know if you've seen the YouTube video, but there's this amazing YouTube video where, um, I actually like I get choked up even just thinking about it a a mom basically went and she had a daughter who had a prosthetic leg Mm -hmm. and she went and they took her I believe it's an American Girl doll and they took it and they actually took it to the prosthesis and they actually put the prosthesis on like a matching one on the American Girl doll and the little girl opens the box and just goes absolutely hysterical so emotional and you know the first words for her are it looks like me and as someone who you know does get to see myself reflected in society a lot it's so important for us to remember that that is not the norm for so many people and it is again it's so important for us as developers to think about how powerful it looks like me or it feels like me or it reminds me of me is to people and if we can start including people in our dialogues and our narratives in our games also just think about the consumer loyalty i mean i really do think there's even a business case not only is it the right moral thing to do right but i actually think there's a business case for it you know if you can start portraying african-american characters in a more positive light instead of always as a gangster in the video game really like there's a huge upside potential there of people who are going to choose to purchase your product because it actually is a positive reflection and relationship for them right so i think as an industry we need to get smarter about how powerful it looks like me is and and um understand that it's it's not only the right thing to do, but it actually could be a, a strong business case as well. Yes, definitely. So last question. I saw Girls Make Games published a statistic that said um, 47% of girls play games, yet 12% are in the gaming industry as creators. What are some of the things that you have seen that are helping increase those numbers? for the industry? Yeah, so, um, you know, personally, I'm really focused on the education piece and and helping people understand that this is even an opportunity. Like I said, you know, I myself, like, never would have thought about going into video game development. And I've been here 15 years, and I absolutely cannot imagine doing anything else because I love it so much. Um, And I feel so blessed to to have stumbled upon this into my career. Um, But there's other factors that play into it, too. You know, not only do people maybe not understand that it's a career that's available to them, but a lot of the video game space is also very well known for crunch, right? And that gets really hard. I myself have chosen different positions within the industry. Um, be- What do you mean crunch? Just we work insane hours. Oh, um, okay. Video games okay. tend to, a video game is different from making a product. If you're making a technology product, it's very easy to write your spec on day one and say, hey, here's the features we're gonna have, here's the scope, and you can look at that and you can say, is this gonna bring value to our consumers? How are we different than other products out there? Like, what is our what makes our product special? Like, what's our technology stack gonna be? All that kind of stuff. When you make a video game, you can't spec fun. And so it ends up being, and I'm not even joking, I have played a build of a game in development. Like I remember even on Kung Fu Chaos, like there was one night and we were playing the game and it was still so tedious and it was work. And the next night we all got together for the build bash and all of a sudden we're laughing and having fun. And it's, game designers are so important because those are, you know, that's those tweaks that end up happening in the balance of the game and that kind of stuff. And you can't spec that on day one. And there's so many times we're in video game development where there are these little nuggets that appear 
And you have to actually plan to derail and go off and spend time in pre-production where you go off and actually find those nuggets. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of have to bring it all back in course. And a lot of times video games do run late and they run way over budget. And a lot of times you have people work really long hours. You know, there's a lot of teams that work for months, seven days a week, really long days. And so because of that crunch, it also really limits who can participate in the space. And, Mm -hmm. you know, even I myself, you know, as an executive producer, you know, when I was looking at switching roles, I was very conscious of the fact that I had young kids at home. And so I was choosing to move to products and to teams where I knew that I wouldn't have to be crunching in that same way as, as other products. And so I think we also need to be much more open to a making sure that we're doing a better job making sure people aren't going to crunch because really i do think a lot of the time um crunch is a result of improper planning and not planning to go off and find nuggets you have to actually plan for that in your schedule right because it's not just going to be a straight a to b path um but i think also being more willing to support you know more people who work part-time within our roles and more people who, um, you know, kind of job share things like that and just what, how things look a little bit different, right? And just being more open. Um, or change the perspective of the gaming industry itself so it doesn't, you know, exclude. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, I think that actually I really do see a tremendous momentum of people wanting to have teams that are more inclusive. Yeah. But I definitely do see a, um, a lack in some of the resumes that we end up getting. And so I think it's also really important as a hiring manager, we have to focus on the specific skills that we're hiring for, not the experience. And that's a really, really, it, it can sound the same, but it's actually really different. For instance, I have a role on my team where people um, kind of have to help people through getting all of their accounts set up, getting contracts done, all of this kind of stuff. So, you know, really this person has to be great at understanding what the partner needs, where they are in the journey, communicating clearly what the next steps are for that person. Funny enough, we ended up hiring someone from the insurance industry. and. You know, and we've hired now a couple people from the insurance industry, and those people have performed fantastic. Because it turns out, if you can help someone who's just called and had a car accident, and you can help, you know, them deal with that stressful situation and where they need to get their rental car and where they're supposed to, you know, have their car towed to and what the next step is in that process, you have the exact same skill set as helping a developer be successful, right? And so by focusing on the skills that we were looking for, instead of the direct experience, you know, we brought a completely different set of talent into our team. And so I think as hiring managers, it's really important to think about that. And I think as as young people going into careers, it's really important that you also help that be demonstrated in your resume, Mm -hmm. right? It's really important to show your passion in the space that you're going in, to show that you have a willingness to learn, a willingness to jump into that space, and then look at how you can demonstrate if you're looking at a position and that position maybe has, you know, X, Y, and Z things that you don't have specific experience in, Break down what those skills are. You might not have that experience, but break down those skills and make sure that your ability to demonstrate those skills is reflected in your cover letter and you know is really clearly called out for people so that it helps them also connect the dots from you know what their job description is and, and what you're bringing to the table. Yeah, definitely. Well, Katie, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed having this conversation with you today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And I look forward to having so many people join the video game industry because of this. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Me too. (laughs) It's really fun.